You're listening to the Friends Talking Nerdy Podcast Network. Friends Talking Nerdy! If your friends are nerdy So, Professor Aubrey here, she... Oh, fucking cats. Alright, sorry about that little hiccup in the recording here, folks, but that little tidbit that we uh, just recorded um, was pretty funny. We had another cat incident. Yes, we did. So, the cats like to go in doors that are not open. So, they like to like go in the laundry room doors. They like to go in the closet doors. And we keep the bedroom and the bathroom closed off as well, so they like to go in those doors. Annie keeps getting locked in places, <laughs> and she, she still keeps going in doors that don't get open very much. She runs into them. I mean, th- to me, uh, as always, I mean, like I've said before, to me, the whole purpose is to make sure that they accept the fact that it's not necessarily their space, you know, because, I mean, you've had them in the bedroom plenty of times, I've had them in the bedroom plenty of times, but what we just had right now was <laughs> Annie somehow got the, the dress, there's a, cl- a cupboard, closet, there's there's the word, the closet uh, right next to us uh, where we're recording here, and Annie somehow got the door open. I mean, I suspect with the number of bags that are on that doorknob, maybe it's just a matter of reaching up over time and uh, making it to where the door the door unintentionally opened. But Annie was just like walking in, like whoa, like she just walked uh, into like King Solomon's mines or something like that. And then Mimsy was looking at me like, hey, did you see what she did? <laughs> you know? They're very cute. They're both very, very cute cats. Uh, yeah, and I mean, th- they can frustrate you. I mean, any cat will frustrate you, but if you accept them as cats and not try to mold them into what you think a cat should be, um, then I-, I think everybody's going to end up happy. Yeah. Yeah. And my girls are happy, too. Happy enough to take a shit while we record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's comfort, people. Yeah, speaking of shit, you actually got to see a piece of videotape history. Yes, I did. My nationwide television debut. That's right. I'm not sure if I saw you. Uh, you did. I pointed it out, remember? I know, but I didn't I didn't see you. Uh, it was because of the lighting. Yeah, you couldn't, you know, see my face and, you know, with with hair. Right. <laughs> you know, so, Going, oh my god, oh my god. But, you know, I knew exactly what I was doing because um, what I'm referring to, folks, is the May 22nd, 2000 episode of Monday Nitro. That was the first uh, professional wrestling television uh, taping, uh, live taping that I had ever been to. And um, I showed it to the professor because we had recently watched uh, an episode of the latest season of Dark Side of the Ring um, about uh, an event that happened during this time in WCW a couple months after this. the Beach 2000, and I wanted to show her just what a Vince Russo wrestling show was like. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty wild with the Vince, Vince Russo. Yeah, for folks out there that aren't wrestling fans, 
<laughs> For folks that are not wrestling fans, Vince Russo um, got his career started in wrestling, working as a writer on the WWF magazine. Um, during that time, he was writing some provocative stuff that got the attention of Vince McMahon, and at the time, the WWF's popularity was in number two, um, because, uh, over WCW over them, so McMahon uh, went with a content change, and Vince Russo was the creative force behind that. Mm. And um, it got to the point, you know, to where they ended up becoming the number one company, and then Vince McMahon made a deal with a new network called UPN to make Thursday Night Smackdown, and he expected Vince Russo to write that show too without a bump and pay. And so Vince Russo ended up uh, quitting and going uh, to the competitor WCW, which had switched to uh, second place because their popularity was on the wane, and. He's a unique guy. I mean, he's not as bad as some of his critics say, but he's not as good as he thinks he is um, as a creative force. And basically what he did is he took the suspension of disbelief you have as a wrestling fan and flushed it down the toilet. Because he would do a lot of this stupid stuff uh, in the ring. Like, every match has to had to be a gimmick match. It wasn't just one-on-one or tag teams or anything like that. Like, the first match uh, at the show was Ernest the Cat Miller versus Booker T in a martial arts weapons match. I mean, Ernest Miller uh, legitimately outside used to be a karate instructor, was a karate instructor to Eric Bischoff's kids, which is how he got to start in wrestling. Uh-huh. Um, so there is at least some logic there that one of the competitors would know how to do it but I mean like one of the nunchucks broke the moment he flipped it and the audience laughed yeah it was funny yeah it, for all the wrong reasons and and what they would he would commonly do too during the storylines which I think was the absolute worst fucking idea in the world and I have no problem using that harsh language there he would constantly do this whole thing of pointing out that the show was written that's not in the script. It's in the script, talking about the script. And then uh, he would have the performer say, well, I'm going off the script now. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It's like, no, you're not. It's like, no, you're not. You're all five. It's like the suspension of disbelief was just gone. He expected people to believe that it was real and then not real and then real at the same time. Right. And... <clears throat> You know, I, I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sure you could probably find, you know, think of some examples like, uh, like, you know, obviously this didn't happen, but, you know, if like Mark Hamill in the middle of a Star Wars, you know, stopped, hey, George, what time is it? And they left that in the film. That would take you out. You wouldn't enjoy Star Wars if they, you know, just constantly cut to stuff like that. And it was literally the equivalent of doing that. I mean, this was also the era where, um, you know, the actor David Arquette. Yeah. He won the WCW World Championship in 2000. He was the world champion. Now, granted, the next week they had a very funny backstage promo with him and Courtney Cox. Courtney Cox was yelling because she they were married at the time. Yeah. Uh, and she was like, oh, my God, what are you doing? These guys are going to hurt you. They're going to hurt you. And then all of a sudden, Kurt Russell walks into frame. And David Arquette goes, hey, I'm the WCW champion. And then Kurt Russell just laughs and walks off the camera. I mean, it was worth it for that. And also, to be fair, David Arquette uh, ended up uh, donating all of his uh, salary to the families of Owen Hart and uh, Brian Pillman. Um, so he didn't take a dime uh, for what he did, even though he still gets some ridicule today for doing something he really didn't have a choice to do. What do you mean he didn't have a choice? 
Uh, it, I mean, he was essentially hired as an actor. I, I mean, he th- w- there was a movie that WCW helped produce in '99 um, that debuted in early 2000 and just bombed called Ready to Rumble. Mm. Um, which, coincidentally enough, had a cameo by uh, pre-famed John Cena. Oh. Yeah, he was, like, in the background lifting weights when he, you know, still had uh, just very blonde hair and a military crew coat or something like that. Mm. But, and I wonder why I'm not gay. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, yeah, you got a chance to see the worst wrestling ever put on television and what was <coughs> so painful about it too apart from me coughing right now <coughs> is the talent level they had they had some legends right and so they were squandering the assets that they did have yeah assets like time speaking of that Time is a great segue. I had my time wasted thanks to a unique dating experience a couple weeks back. Oh, yeah? What happened? Oh, boy. Um, You know, I I go back and forth on wanting to use, like, dating apps. But, you know, if you deal with anxiety like like I do, it is a good way to get your foot in the door to where you at least know you have a shot. (laughs) Right. You know, because, like, going up to a complete stranger... Like, my, my big fear would be, I, you know, like, I don't want to say something that could turn things sour and, and the good things that we have. Right. Like a co-worker or something like right, that. Right, right, right. Um, we're going to take another drink. Please cover. Okay. Yeah, so, um, I, you know, have felt the same way, definitely with regard to a co-worker. I can totally understand why you wouldn't want to, you know, approach them. But, like, for me... I mean, I used to meet people in bars. I, I mean, yeah, I, I had a couple of years in my 20s where I was single, and I was never a bar person. Mm. I mean, I did go to a couple of, uh, you know, of the types of bars that do play uh, both kinds of music. Um, uh, Country a couple and of t- Yeah, with, with my dad and ended up seeing karaoke at one. That was the place where... Um, uh, that, that was also the place too on, on a different occasion I think it was on my birthday uh, where I had seven Boilermakers oh whoa yeah that's a lot of Boilermakers yeah for folks that don't know what that is it's a shot of whiskey dropped in a glass of beer and you drink it all yeah yeah but man so matched up with a woman on a dating app and you know one thing which app was it uh, Bumble oh Bumble of all okay. places yeah and um Matched up with a person, and for me on a dating app, what the first sign that something may be good, you know, may be good, even if it's just a friendship, is when you have instant rapport the moment you connect. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there have been plenty of times where I've connected with somebody, and then it'll be like a text or two every couple of days, and it's just like, why? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like. Uh, like if you're trying to light a campfire it's a small little ember or something like that it's just like are you going to try that or a different way to start a fire right you know um, but matched with this person and pretty instant rapport and you know it got to the point to where uh, we talked about going out on a date and we made uh, uh, it was when you were off on uh, your camping trip earlier 
was out. last weekend in July then. Yeah, so a couple weeks back, you know, me with time, little days in. <laughs> but um, made an additional, uh, made, made an initial date for Thursday, but told her that, you know, hey, because of work, um, you know, I don't have a firm get off of work time. You know, I leave when the job is done. And, you know, it's, you know, explain to her, because when I call myself the podcast making public transit taking, kiss, stealing, wheeling, dealing, son of a gun, I'm serious about the public transit thing. I mean, I, I don't have a car by choice. I don't have like a flood of DUIs or anything like that. I just don't like to drive. And I live in the perfect town to be able to do that. Sure. You know, so we made the initial uh, date, and as it happened, I ended up working till 7.30 that night, and ended up getting home around 8 o'clock. I mean, a bus ride is like 20 minutes, and, and you know, that's, there's an additional 20 minutes or so uh, walking to the bus stop, but, you know, walking after work, I, I love that, <laughs> you know, um, so... Ended up saying, hey, it's it's late, and, and you're coming from a far way, far way away, um, you know, so let's reschedule for Saturday. And then she got really upset, you know, not like, fuck you or anything like that. It's just you can tell when, with somebody's words, I guess, if it's, if they're affected by it more than, oh, well, you know. And, uh, you know, it's like I felt bad, but it's just like I do feel I was pretty damn clear about this not being a 100% opportunity, you know? Mm-hmm. And if somebody is, like, disappointed in that happening before they've even met you, yeah, think about the pressure of what it is they would want from a regular partner, you know? Yeah, I mean, because to me, at the end of the day, and, you know, we were seeing this off the air, like, I felt that... You know, if you hear every possible outcome and you make the decision to potentially go with it, if, if it can happen, then you can't really get upset if it doesn't. If you knew that there was a chance it could not happen. I'm not saying be disappointed. It's, that's human nature. You're going to be disappointed because you're excited for something to happen. But if you accept the fact that it may not happen and it doesn't, you can't get mad. No, you can't get mad if somebody has told you that might happen and you go into it anyway. Mm-hmm. Like, she could have said, no, that doesn't work for me. I need to have firm plans. That, that would have been that would have been correct. That would have been the right thing to do, you know, because, you know, ghosting is a thing. And, you know, uh, if, if you've had that happen to you, it can sting. And especially if it's happened on a recent basis, maybe you don't want to um, experience it if, if you don't have to. I get that. But again, I communicated clearly. You know? Right. So um, what? Right. What surprised me was um, when you told me that you had blocked her after... Uh, well, that's ahead of the story. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're getting there, folks. <laughs> but, um, no, so we had made, uh, you know, the backup plan was Saturday. And being that I had that day off anyway, it probably was the good thing. And then on Saturday in the afternoon, she texts me. She's like, hey, I'm at work right now. I'll be out at 6. It was either 6 or 6.30, but one of those times. And, you know, by the time I got that message, I was like, great. Looked at the clock. It was around 2 o'clock. And I thought, why not take a nap? So I took a nap, set an alarm for 5.30 and woke up to that alarm because I realized, you know, I, I may have been sounding like I was leading up to it. I slept through it and didn't you know, go into uh, but yeah, no. But, yeah, I, 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 I was a good boy. I, I got up at 5.30, grabbed my phone, and saw two text messages. One was around 4 o'clock of her stating, hey, I'm done, I'm heading, you know, I'll head your way, just let me know. And then a half hour later, 
well, I haven't hear, haven't heard from you. I wish you well. And there was more to it. I'm paraphrasing there, but she did say, I wish you well. And it's just like, what the fuck is this? You're right. Uh, it's like, again, we had texted. We didn't talk on the phone. So there's evidence that she wrote 6 fucking 30. Um, you know, it's like, could I have said, oh, I thought it was 6.30. Sure. But, you know, maybe it's because I've been burned a lot, you know, with bad experiences and relationships over the years that this, you said red flag earlier. It was a red flag. It was just like, uh, this is going to lead to more problems. If this is this serious a situation now, why deal with it? So, yeah, I blocked her. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I wish her well. If, if on the off chance she hears this, I'm not saying this as a personal attack or anything like that. I don't think I've said anything that could be really construed as that. I'm just telling you my perception of the events as they happened. Gotcha. So, but, god damn. <laughs> you know, being alone with my cats and one of the cats and he, Mimsy, poor Mimsy. I did get, we did get, her, get them some toys. We did get them some toys. We got them um, a scratcher, and these were always the favorites of Sherman and Phil and Tilly and Miss Kitty, mm-hmm. who are all cats that I've lived with recently. <laughs> they, um, It's like a box, and it has a scratcher in it, and you put catnip on it, and the catnip collects in the bottom of the box so it doesn't get all over the place. And the scratchy, you know, the debris from scratching also falls through. So it's like a way to keep it clean, even though the cats love to scratch on it. Yeah, I mean, Annie has not been one to, so far, uh, be really attracted to catnip. But she has taken to, um, you know, you know, sharpening her nails on that instead of the couch. I, I've noticed that they've done that less. Oh, good. You know, I'm not promising never again. You know, <laughs> hopefully this helps. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But anyway, um, this is Tim the Nerd here, joining me as always, and you've already heard her beautiful voice. We have the greatest legal mind in the Pacific Northwest, Professor Aubrey. How you doing? Hey, I'm really good. How you doing, Tim? I'm doing good. Doing good. Now, good. since I shared a dating story, I think you got one, right? Yeah, it's actually related to the first part of what you were talking about, which is wrestling, oddly enough. But I um, went on a date with a person I had seen once before, and um, really nice guy. And he and I were just chatting, and I was saying, you know, people, people are interested in all kinds of things and have all kinds of hobbies. And so we were both, like, throwing out examples of, like, things that people are into. And I said, worldwide wrestling or professional wrestling. And he was like, oh, my God, do you like professional wrestling? And I was like, sure, I like to watch AEW. And he was like, oh, my God, I watch AEW. And so I said, yeah, my favorite AEW person is um, Ikirushida. And he said, oh, cool. (laughs) And then the next day... He texted me and said that she had won the championship the night before. Yeah. Um, which I thought was nice. And so it was just a... It's just a funny coincidence that something I usually would never tell anybody about. 
You came out of the wrestling closet. <laughs> right? I came out of the wrestling closet with this guy, and he immediately came out of the wrestling closet with me. So There you go. There you go. And, and I, I think that is, unfortunately, the minority group of wrestling fans that make wrestling look bad are the ones that get the most attention. Um, I think at the end of the day, wrestling has a wide, a vast array of people that are interested from all walks of life. You know, um, it's not deep entertainment at all, but, you know, it takes the passion of sports and adds the drama element to it. And, you know, who doesn't like that? I mean, the, the you know, regular sports take, you know, take, take cues from the WWE anyway, in terms of, like, production, in terms of, you know, presentation and all that stuff. So, it you know, wrestling man can bring people together. Yeah. It can. It's going to, it's like plur. Yeah. <laughs> Now, I know what that is, but I want to know if you know what that is. I know what it is. It's peace, love, unity. That's right, from the Burning Man episode. Right. We can't remember what the last thing is. Yeah, uh, respect. Yes, peace, love, unity, respect. Yeah, that was a guess, but... No, I, I think mean, that's it, right. It fit with it, yeah, but that's another thing. You're going to be heading off to Burning Man here soon, so this week as we record this, we're going to have a few episodes in the can, so we have fresh episodes uh, through the end of August and into September. That's right. Yes, and um, usually we do try our best to theme everything. The theme this week is... Uh, the theme for this, you know, essentially month of episodes is entertainment. Mm-hmm. You know, just, you know, whether it be our usual Nerdy Five stuff, which we're going to do here today with, uh, you know, our opinions of movie remakes, whether the original or uh, the newer version uh, was better. But, you know, we're going to have some fun topics to talk about because topics like this create conversation. You know, any sort of top 10, top 20, whatever list, um, even if they have very stringent rules for how things get ranked, at the end of the day, you know, unless we're talking like sports rankings or something like that, if it's rankings of movies, it's opinion. Oh, yeah. It's all, any kind of ranking is always opinion, except, I guess, like tournament style sports events. Uh, yeah, and that's a different thing altogether. I mean, because, yeah. you know, that, that's an actual sport. People compete, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, like I mentioned, we are, we put together our list of some of our favorite uh, remakes. Um, and the, as always, since we know we talk about this stuff on the show, you know, we do, as, as we record this, tomorrow will be the sixth anniversary of the very first recording of Friends Talking Nerdy. Oh, my God, congratulations. Yeah, so, uh, but... We've talked about a lot of stuff on this show over the years, so we do our best to, you know, when we come up with lists like this, to be a little, to add a little variety. Right. You know, so we're not talking about, like, Star Wars every single episode. You know? Although it's worthy of being talked about every single episode. Oh, yeah. Don't get me wrong. I, you know, but variety is a spice of life. But what we are going to do is go through our list here like we always do, go back and forth, have some conversation, and just chat about and chat about movies this week. Are you ready? I am totally ready. Did you want to start us off? No, why don't you start us off? Okay. I guess. Put me in my place. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. All right. This movie came out in nineteen ninety nine. Uh, starred one Brendan Fraser and was a remake of a 1932 Boris Karloff movie. Uh, we're talking about The Mummy. 
Mm. Um, in terms of, compa- I mean, the, the, there's a lot I love about the original, uh, and it's not fair to rank a movie in the very early years of Hollywood compared to a movie in the '90s when CGI was just blossoming. You know, so I, in tr- you know, they're their own separate entities. But what I loved about this is that it took the Indiana Jones vibe and and kind of did its own little weird quirky thing with it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's just like a swashbuckling affair. Brendan Fraser is a perfect leading man, and it's unfortunate that his career was, uh, you know, put in danger for as many years as it was for just such a horrific reason. He was sexually harassed mm-hmm. and got blacklisted. But, you know, this is one of those roles that, you know, that people would always question, like, why is the guy from The Mummy not working today? Mm-hmm. Like, he should be in many more movies like this. Like, mm-hmm. good-looking guy, great attitude, very nice guy. I mean, everybody's rooting for him. You know, he's, like, up there in Keanu Reeves' status right now in terms of how people really think about him as a person and all that. But The Mummy, a damn good adventure film. Yeah, I remember seeing the the, the newer version. It's on Cruise. With Tom Cruise, exactly. Um, no, no, the Brendan Fraser one. Oh, okay. But I had never seen the original mm. Boris Karloff one. Yeah, it's been years since I've seen it, so don't question me about that particular one. But it's part of the Universal uh, Monster Library. And, you know, every few years, Universal tries to come up with ideas to try and revive them. Um, In 2016, they did remake The Mummy again with Tom Cruise. Um, But that was supposed to start... it was Universal trying to do their own uh, Marvel thing by having something called the Dark Universe mm. to where they were going to unite, um, you know, the mummy, Dracula, Frankenstein, uh, the creature from the Black Lagoon, all into one movie universe where they all meet up or whatever. But, you know, much like Zack Snyder did with uh, his DC movies that, you know, worked for some people, didn't work for others. You know, my critique that I, one thing I didn't like was that he was planting seeds for movies that if it were successful and got to that were about 15 years away and audiences you know you will have your hardcore audience that will you know have that passion for it through the entire 15 years and be waiting waiting and expecting but most people that go to see movies like this just want to be entertained that day yeah you know, especially for that type of movie, because, you know, like the mummy is about a mummy that comes to life and starts attacking people at the end of the day. You know, it's not, it's not war and peace. It's not <laughs> right. Les Miserables. You know, right. right? It's meant to be thrilling, and at the end of the day, you're you're cheering because the hero got the gal. Yeah. You know, but if you haven't seen it or you haven't seen it in a long time, you know, watch it just so Brendan Fraser can get some more royalties because like he deserves it. That's so sweet of you. Yeah. 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 Please make this man money and not me. <laughs> we do have a Patreon, by the way, folks. So. Yes, we do. Sign up for our Patreon. Yes. What's your first choice? So, I actually have two Christmas ones that I'm going to start with. Um, the first one is A Classic Tale by um, Charles Dickens of Victorian England, where a mean old grouchy guy named Mr. Scrooge and his trusty um, clerk, Bob Cratchit, embark on a drama about the meaning of Christmas. 
starring Jean-Claude Van Damme. <laughs> <laughs> there are no explosions. Yeah. Um, so I haven't seen it. <laughs> and so it's been made, like, I don't know, probably a hundred times in different um, more than I, I think it is, you know, apart from, like, Bible stories or Shakespeare, I think it's up there in the top three of most adapted stories. I totally believe it. So... So I'm going with my favorite adaptation of Christmas Carol. If you hadn't guessed what it was yet. It's the Christmas Carol, and it's my favorite, and that is the Muppet Christmas Carol. I think it's from around 1990. No, this hap- that happened after Henson passed away. It was uh, late 90s. Oh, okay, yeah, late 90s. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. 97 maybe because one of the reasons I didn't see it was like I, I was kind of territorial of Kermit you know like when Kermit when Jim Henson passed away it, like everybody I was sad and then they had a re, they had a special on CBS um, at it was essentially a new episode of the Muppet show and they were all talking all the characters were there except for Kermit um, talking about Jim Henson and all that, and then at the very end, they introduced the new voice of Kermit. And I was sitting there like, "That ain't Kermit." Fuck you. <laughs> 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 um, and it took me a long time to warm up to that actor. I mean, thankfully I did because of the you know we talked. I think we talked about it within the past couple of episodes. Um, you know, the 2011 Muppet movie. Yeah, great movie. Same actor in that, and I, I think if anything, that helped kind of like. Uh, you know, I didn't, when I first saw that movie, the way I described it to people was like it was. It felt like meeting up with a friend you hadn't seen in thirty years and picking right up where you left off. Yeah. And I guess I needed that before anything else. But go ahead, Muppet Christmas Carol. Well, have you seen it since? No. <laughs> okay. Well, we have to watch it this holiday season because it is so wonderful and cute and has all the cute characters and. It's a very sweet story, of course. Uh, we know that Scrooge redeems himself in the end and saves the little boy's life. Uh, and I should see that, too, because I think that was, I believe, one of the last times that Frank Oz uh, did Fozzie right, and Miss exactly. Piggy. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I probably should at some point. Maybe we'll, have, maybe we'll have a quiz show, like, uh, you know, No Chance in Hell. <laughs> no, I'll see it voluntarily. Yes. All right, shall I go on with my next one? All right, I was 15 years old. I decided I was going to skip school. Being six foot one at the time, I'm six foot five now. I walked out those doors and nobody thought, I mean, if anything, they thought there's a young college student. So I took my high school bus pass, which got me on the bus for free, and went to Studio 28 and watched my first rated R movie. Hey. Bram Stoker's Dracula. Ooh. Yeah. Um, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, um, from, um, oh, Bram St- <laughs> I'm sitting there thinking, who's the author? Who wrote it? Who wrote Bram Stoker's Dracula? <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, I, I'm glad I saw this. Am I going to say it's my favorite film of all time? No. Um, if I, Honestly, I do prefer the Bela Lugosi original, but it's a similar situation as the first one. You can't really compare the two. They're two different things. And, you know, as a filmmaker, Francis Ford Coppola, it, you know, even for a commercial property like this, is still going to do some 
amazing things. Like he he ended up uh, using like uh, special effects uh, that were originally created for like films in the twenties. In terms of you know doing some of the stuff that he pulled off, um, you know Gary Oldman as Dracula was great. Um, Keanu Reeves was in it, but this was the era to where for some reason Hollywood executives thought let's cast Keanu Reeves in as many roles where he has to put on a foreign accent that we can, <laughs> and he's not good at it. No, no. I mean, this is when right after he was the Chevalier in um, Dangerous Liaisons. So. Dude, um, you know, like I've compared Keanu Reeves to like Clint Eastwood as an actor. You know, I think for very specific roles, he's amazing. But you know, he's not Macbeth, right? You know, but um, you know, Winona Ryder's in the movie. She plays Mina. Um, you know, if you see it for anything, Gary Oldman choose the scenery. Oh yeah. I mean, Gary Oldman when he gets real tall. Remember that part. So good. Yeah, but it's. I, I think it's one you have to see. It's not Francis Ford Coppola's best film, but when your best film is Apocalypse Now, there, there's no place to go but down. Right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, totally. Any thoughts on Dracula? Well, I saw it when it came out as well, and I thought Winona Ryder just looked stunning in it. I thought the costumes and scenery were amazing. Mm-hmm. Um. Keanu was cute and innocent, right? Um, Gary Oldman was Oldham was um, really spellbinding. Anthony Hawkins was in the movie too. Oh, uh huh. Yes, he was. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good movie. Like it dragged a little bit. There's a lot of backstory, and which makes sense because Dracula's been alive for what 500 years or something. Yeah. And I think, too, I mean, if you think about it, you're talking a 1970s director made a 1970 film and debuted it in the mid-90s. Right. You know, um, in terms of speed, what works for Coppola is not, was not going to work for 90s audiences necessarily, which like, I felt a drag, too. Um, but it was just a different type of pacing. Right. You know, you know and, but it's still, again, I recommend people check it out. Oh, yeah. I think it's worth watching, for sure. Yep. All right, what's your next one? So my next one is How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Uh-huh. So another property that Jim Carrey has ruined for me, um, amongst the many, but the version I think is best is the original, of course, based on the Dr. Seuss book. Narrated. By Boris Karloff, I believe, right? Yes, narrated by Boris Karloff, and um, completely animated. Yep, by uh, directed by Chuck Jones. The same guy from uh, Looney Tunes. Looney Tunes, yeah. yeah. Um, so the original version is great. It makes me cry every time I see it. Like it's very authentic, I think. And then the Jim Carrey later version was live action. And was absolutely a stink ball to me. Like, I I made myself watch it. I didn't laugh the whole time. I wasn't amused or I, joyous about anything that was happening. I mean, I, I think of that movie. I think of the live-action Cat in the Hat with Mike Myers. And I just thought, why did Hollywood executives think they could get away with making rated PG Dr. Seuss stories? 
make a straight adaption. You can do a live action and have it be fun and entertaining, but it's not a PG movie, you know, because, like, The Cat in the Hat, Mike Myers is making adult jokes, Jim Carrey was doing his thing, and I hate, you know, hearing backstage interviews with other actors. I hated hearing interviews with other actors that worked with him, like, oh, I love it when he just does his thing. And and all it is is just, like, he, he riffs. You know, he'll just say line after line after line after line, hoping one is funny, and they're recording them all. You know, so you do see the funny parts, and I'm not saying he's not funny, but just when somebody, tr- you know, someone like him tries too much. Oh and, my god, I don't think he's funny at all. I he has his moments with me, but it it can get it got old fast. I mean, he's he's in a lot of ways like Jeff, Jeff Foxworthy. You know, um, now having said that, as as a drama actor, that's a different story. I think, uh, you know, as an actor overall, he does, you know, he did, he retired apparently, um, but he he had some chops. I mean, if you watch The Truman Show, for instance, I, I think that, you know, he did end up utilizing his humor in a good way, um, but showed his, he had a very good serious side too. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, in, in the French love Jerry Lewis, him. Okay. <laughs> right. Anyhow, that's my judgment on the Grinch. All right. Yeah. Fuck you, Jim Carrey. <laughs> All right. My next one is a story that has been adapted in a few different ways. Um, originally based off an Akira Kurosawa film, Seven Samurai. Uh, the film I chose here was the original 1960 adaption of The Magnificent Seven. Mm. You know, you know, great. Yeah, we played song. that in the band. That's the only thing I know about it. The song. <laughs> Um, it's, yeah, it's, the story itself has been done many times. Like, we watched A Bug's Life the other day. Oh, yeah. That's the Magnificent Seven story. Yeah. Um, you know, Three Amigos, that's the Magnificent Seven story. It's a small band of, you know, misfits that help protect a a weak town against bad guys. Yeah. You know, but this had, um, you know, Yul Brenner, and I still remember the um, Bill Hicks bit about Yul Brenner and the runner Jim Fix, because apparently Yul Brenner's like, it made a commercial that, that premiered after he died. You know, I'm Yul Brenner and I'm dead now because I smoke cigarettes. <laughs> and, you know, the, Bill brought up the fact that there was a health nut named Jim Fix who was a runner and wrote some books, you know, ended up dying of a heart, of, heart attack um, while running. And, you know, he made fun. He was like, I'm Jim Fix, and I'm dead now. I worked out, ate right, did, you know, <laughs> did everything right, and I still died. <laughs> Yul Brenner was drinking, smoking, getting blowjobs, and he talked to the same damn thing. Fuck. <laughs> but, um, yeah, Yul Brenner, we had a young Charles Bronson, um, mm. you know, in his prime. Um, most importantly, though, like, this was the film that made the world see Steve McQueen and go, God damn. He's one. I mean, like, he really is the first action star. Oh, definitely. I mean, Bullet is widely considered to be, you know, the first, what we consider action movie um, was Bullet. And, you know, Steve McQueen was the star of that. And, you know, if you've seen him in anything, you know what I mean. Like, uh, you know, I've seen, like, The Towering Inferno. Like, he stood out in that role. Uh, You know, Magnificent Seven. He was great in that role. Just, we lost him too soon. Let's put it that way. Gotcha. Yeah. 
Any thoughts on The Magnificent Seven? <laughs> well, you know, there was a film called The Magnificent Seven. Mm-hmm. That's Later. Yeah, it was remade again, and uh, I'm surprised I haven't seen it. I think it, the director's name is Antoine Fuqua, who did Training Day. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, yeah, it starred Denzel Washington, um, Chris Pratt, and a few other people. And you know, Antoine, I saw that one. It was good. Yeah, Antoine Fuqua is one hell of a great action director. So um, I, I, I am surprised I haven't seen that. Let's put it that way. I'll put yeah. that on my list to watch too. Yeah, you should. All right. Okay. What's your next? My next one is Dune. Ah. So, originally... David Lynch classic. (laughs) Right, the David Lynch classic. You know, David Lynch often is, what we would say back home, is his eyes are bigger than his stomach. Like, what he conceived that he could do was not equal to what he had the technological ability to do. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... Not that other people at that time didn't have it, but he didn't have it. So, his version is very small um, because they couldn't use a lot of special effects. He didn't use a lot of special effects. So, it focused on the drama of the story. The new version of Dune, which was a two-parter, which just the second part just came out earlier this year. Mm-hmm. Gorgeous, gorgeous movie, gorgeous actors, wonderful acting, beautiful cinematography. Dave Bautista's in it. Dave Bautista's in it. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I thought it was really great, the, the part one and part two of Dune that just recently came out. So I'm going with that as my favorite of those, those two remakes. Do you know why David Lynch accepted the work in Dune? No. Because in 1982, he turned down this little movie that ended up being released in 1983 called Return of the Jedi. Oh, whoa. And he thought, I could have made a lot of money. (laughs) So um, he ended up accepting Dune, um, but he he has come out in interviews uh, plenty of times since then stating like, I didn't really get the work. I mean, I guess it wasn't his cup of tea, I guess I should say. Not get. I mean, the, you know, the guy's great with story, let's put it that way. But, yeah. um, you know, there was that. And then uh, the producer of the film is the same guy I talk, talked about when we talked about um, the Jessica Lang movie. And I see that name of that movie on your list here. So you may be talking about that again. But Dino mm-hmm. De Laurentiis ended up producing uh, that movie. Oh, really? Yeah, and uh, as you saw, just he was that type of producer uh, with, you know, with Doom. Like, Laurentiis was not the right producer. You know, like, Spielberg possibly could have pulled it off uh, in the 80s with Industrial Light and Magic, but ILM did not, you know, do the special effects on this movie. Um, And the people that did just, to your point, yeah, didn't have the technological capabilities to be able to pull off a tenth of what that story needed I think mm-hmm. it, it, you know like like Marvel Comics it needed CGI in order to be pulled off yeah yeah otherwise otherwise it is about the story it's not about the beauty or the atmosphere or, you know you're, it's, you're left with the drama mm-hmm. which is how they made you know superhero movies back in the day 
Yeah, I mean, back in the day, before CGI, I mean, the you know, you had a superhero like Superman who came from another world, but his villain was always a Lex Luthor type. Not always Lex Luthor, but it was a businessman. Yeah. You know, um, whereas now you you know could potentially have Brainiac as a villain. You could have Doomsday show up, or what would be great if they did a Superman and Mister Mix Mixopidilic film. You know, he's kind of like a Rumpelstiltskin character from a, the Fifth Dimension, I believe, who will show up and he has the abilities to create all kinds of chaotic problems. Uh, to illustrate the point, in the, in the cartoon, uh, the character is voiced by Gilbert Gottfried. Oh, so, nice. uh, and uh, you. You know, I think if it was pulled off in that vein of a comedy, I think that would be an interesting take, and I think that would, you know, could be fun too. But, you know, again, Superman Doomsday, a real death of Superman movie. Oh man, I'd weep. <laughs> I'm sure lots of people would, which is probably probably why they will never do that. <laughs> well, they did in the comics, damn it. Sorry, dude. Yeah, well, they resurrected him six months later. But anyway, shall I go on with my next one? Yes, please go on with your next one. Yeah, the next one. We actually did an episode on the remake uh, of this particular one uh, back in our archive. So feel free to go back in the show history and check it out here. Six years of wacky goodness here. (laughs) Um, But I'm talking about the original in this particular case. And I've talked about it before, of course. But what else can be said about Psycho? I mean, Alfred Hitchcock uh, essentially dared put himself in his own personal challenge. He wanted to make a movie, but he challenged himself by making a movie with his television staff from Alfred Hitchcock Presents, not his normal motion picture staff, and filmed it all on television, you know, and on television sound stages. Oh, wow. And, uh, but you wouldn't know that based on just, it feels like a big film. Yeah, you know, even, yeah, even though it's set in a small town, but the performances—I mean, Anthony Perkins as Norman Bates—I loved how he played it because Norman was hiding for his mother, not like in the remake with Vince Vaughn, where Vince Vaughn was, you know, hiding the fact that he killed people. You know, I mean, you didn't believe that Vince Vaughn was a separate character from Mother because in the story, spoilers, the, you know, he has a, a essentially split personality disorder. I don't know what they call it today. Um, Multiple personality syndrome. Yes, like that. that. Um, and, and it is possible with people who do have that for severe cases to, if they switch to in their head to the other person, they're a separate being. Right. You know, and I think it, they've even done like studies on people like that to where like brain waves will end up being different once they switch, uh, you know, to a different person or something like that. But um, his his work as an actor, uh, above all else, if you're going to watch that movie, watch it for his performance. But Janet Lee too at the beginning of the film, like, um, you know, I love her in this movie. I love her uh, in the Orson Welles movie Touch of Evil with Charles uh, Charlton Heston as a Mexican detective. I mean, at the very least, he didn't use an accent, let's put it that way. But, you know, for a black and white film, you know, he had black hair and a black mustache. And I'm Hector Ramirez. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds horrid. Uh, It's it's a good film, but it's a film of its time, let's put it that way. (laughs) Right. But any thoughts on Psycho? You know, I find Psycho terrifying. And I found the Vince Vaughn one like a community theater production. <laughs> okay, I mean, I, I like agree. it was on a it was on a theater stage. Like there were theater style backdrops. 
It was all like one shot. Like you were watching theater. Mm-hmm. Did, right? I mean, he was trying to mimic what Hitchcock did, but Gus Van Zandt is not Hitchcock. No, Gus Van Zandt is a great director. Don't get me wrong. I mean, for Goodwill Hunting alone, you know, the, uh, my goodness. But he is not Hitchcock. I, I think he if he would be the first to say that. You know, he did this as an experiment more than anything else. I mean, it was because of Goodwill Hunting that he had the ability to do this. But, you know, I just wish he had taken the story and kind of did it in his own way. You know, like other remakes. You know, like uh, there was a, a Chris Rock movie, Down to Earth, in the early 2000s, which was a remake of the Warren Beatty movie, Heaven Can Wait. Mm. Same idea, but... Chris Rock did his own own thing with it. I mean, they're neither are classics, but you know what I mean. I, I just wish he had done that and then tried to do this quote-unquote shot-for-shot remake. But, you know, if you watch anything, watch the original. It is an absolute classic. Oh, you know, definitely. And the shower scene music. Yeah, great. All right. So awful. What's your last choice? Um, or your next choice? My next choice yeah. is King Kong. So there have been many versions of King Kong, of course. Um, I'm speaking of the version uh, with Jessica Lange that we talked about a little bit last week. And this week. And this week. Um, It's a great movie. I like it. Obviously, I've talked about it before. The new version is, like, poo. (laughs) It's not good. And it has Jack Black in it, which would make it seem like I should like it. But it's Jack Black in a drama role, which I just can never get into. He, yeah, he's he's no John Belushi. I mean, John Belushi uh, did uh, one role, and I forgot the name of the movie, but it was it didn't do well. But I saw it and thought he did really damn good in it. Um, of him as a reporter um, out, and it was a romantic comedy. Hmm. You know, and I, you know, if I remember it, I'll um, bring it up at some point, I guess. But, you know, uh, he, he, yeah, Jack Black is a force of nature. Jack Black is like Keanu Reeves or Clint Eastwood. He's good for Jack Black type of roles. Right. You know, um, and sometimes it sucks being typecast. But, uh, you know, if you're really damn good at something, make a lot of money at it, you know. (laughs) Right, and I don't think Jack Black is hurting for money, certainly. Uh, exactly, exactly. Um, I'm not a huge Peter Jackson fan. I know when um, like the Get Back documentary came out, at first I was like, it's Peter Jackson, it's going to be 47,000 hours long. Um, and it was long, but it worked for that. Um, you know, I, I wasn't a fan of what he did with The Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit. Um, having said that, that was just my. I, I, it was not my taste. That's all. I'm not knocking, you know, the artistry behind what he did. Um, you know, and if anything, I'm glad he was able to get those films on the big screen and open up and open up Tolkien to a new audience that may not have sought that may not have uh, sought out those books. So just because I'm not a fan of the movies doesn't mean I don't respect it. But he does have a tendency of going long. He does have that tendency, and you know, I loved all the Lord of the Rings books, and I loved the movies, and like with the Harry Potter movies before, J.K. Rowling just uh, outed herself as a huge turf. Um, we know that 
the Harry Potter books and movies were also very exciting for me around the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, like, sort of law school and right after law school, those those movies were coming out, and it was just always a big celebration when one of them came out. Yep. The escapism is fun, folks. Yep. All right, shall I go on with my last one? Isn't it my turn? No, you just wrapped up your turn. Unless you have more to say about King Kong. Oh, no. I don't have anything else to say about King Kong. Right. We were talking about Jack Black. That's what... Yeah. Do I have permission to go on? Yes, please do go on. Okay. Um, Are you familiar with Thomas Harris? Thomas Harris. An author. He wrote... His most famous book is The Silence of the Lips. Oh. Well, I'm familiar with that. Yes. Well... The Silence of the Lambs is actually a sequel, um, technically. Uh, it's t- it, 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 his work is, is like a lot of authors. It's set in a world, and but you know his first book, he created this interesting character that really intrigued him, but wasn't a part of the story in a big way. It was a very minor character. That character was Hannibal Lecter, mm-hmm. and that story was Red Dragon. Okay, um, and. I'm not talking about the Red Dragon movie that came out in the mid-2000s, directed by a horrible scumbag human being, Brett Ratner, um, and just an awful, awful movie. I'm talking about the first movie that featured the Hannibal Lecter character, and that was not Silence of the Lambs. That was in 1987, uh, written and directed, maybe not written, but I know directed by Michael Mann, who was the main creative force behind Miami Vice, ended up uh, directing the movies like Heat, um, Mm. uh, the the Ali uh, biopic, uh, the Miami Vice movie, (laughs) but this this movie uh, was a movie called Manhunter. Um, It starred, and I forgot the actor's name, but um, you ever watch CSI? No. Okay. It was the star of CSI uh, was in this movie. And, um, you know, just Michael Mann knows how to to direct these types of movies. It was real intense from first to last. It was nothing like um, Silence of the Lambs in any way, shape, or form. And like I said, Hannibal Lecter is in it, um, but played by Brian Cox. And it is just a very... It's a minor role and a much different take compared to, you know, what, you know, we ended up seeing. But uh, the ending of the movie was famous because, you know, similar to The Silence of the Lambs, it's the good guy cop going after the bad guy and they have their final battle. Um, And, you know, and I think it's become cliche because of this movie, but um, it started doing weird camera angles, different lighting, and then playing Inagata DeVita as the, you know, the hero and the killer, like, face off in battle. Um, And... Yeah, I mean, if this is much superior to the remake Red Dragon, and the remake Red Dragon, sadly enough, had Anthony Hopkins as um, as Hannibal Lecter, and was written by the guy who wrote the original script for The Silence of the Lambs, but they just had to get that fucker um, <laughs> Brett Ratner to direct that movie. I mean, just my God, what a horrible human being. Anyway, well, that sucks. Yeah. But I, knowing your taste in movies, I know you've not seen Silence of the Lambs. Maybe you've seen Silence of the Lambs. I've seen Silence of the Lambs. I saw it when it first came out, and I never watched it again after that. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, you, you, this is not be a movie you would particularly care for yeah. in terms of enjoyment. But, yeah. um, you know, if... if <laughs> um, if you've seen Silence of the Lambs and have not seen Manhunter yet, do yourself a favor. Check it out. Cool. 
All right, my last one is Pride and Prejudice. So there have been many, many versions of this as well. And my favorite is the one with Keira Knightley in it that was in the mid-2000s, um, like 2010s maybe. Mm-hmm. Maybe. I, I don't remember. But um, fairly recently compared to the BBC version, which was its most close-in-time predecessor. Yeah. That is the one that had Colin Firth in it, the BBC version, Ooh. and the Colin Firth scene where he jumps in the in the pond, and he has a white shirt on, and he comes up out of the pond. You see his nipples. You can see his <laughs> nipples and his six pack, and he's like super hot. It's e- this one is even better, and I think that it really shows off the character of Eliza Bennett um, in a better way, like. I think in the BBC version, it was always like, why does anybody care about her? Like, the acting just was kind of stiff, like, very theater actress-y, kind of. And um, I find the the newer version of Pride and Prejudice was just so more naturalistic, and I really loved it. Like, you saw the pigs walking through, you saw the muck on the bottom of their skirts. Like, it was very... Uh, visually rich with character. Any explosions? Not a single one. No. Okay. It's a really good movie, though. You should watch it. <laughs> Some, I mean, you got me to watch Little Women in theaters, so maybe someday. It's true. Yeah. Anyway, um, so uh, yeah, I think we'll wrap it up there. Okay, sounds and, good. You know, any other any thoughts on remakes in general? I think remakes are good. I think it's good for there to be a second take on things. Second, third, fourth take on things. Yeah, I mean, that's how ideas are formed, really. I mean, you know, like we've culturally kind of been stifled in this country for the past century because of people like Sonny Bono, the bastard, um, you know, getting the copyright extended to where, you know, the the person who owns the copyright, you know, even after they die, it expires like 95 years or something after they die which is an obscene long time because ideas are created based on older ideas. There is no such thing as an original idea. Right, Shakespeare said that. Yeah. Fuck, I said it for now. <laughs> anyway. Um, so, it, the, the, yeah, I mean, I am, in theory, not against remakes whatsoever, but um, Hollywood has shown, especially over the past decade, that, you know, when you have studio executives that are more concerned about the bottom line and view a movie or a TV show or something like that as a commodity, like bread, like lumber, like a car or something like that, you know, it kind of ruins the whole experience. Mm -hmm. You know, like, take a look at the Ghostbusters 2016 uh, uh, movie that starred the women. You know, um, they brought it back, and by making it a complete remake, as if the original didn't exist, it immediately turned the fans. Mm-hmm. You know, some went extremely overboard, and they should all be ashamed of themselves. Mm. But, you know, overall, though, you know, you just had a cynical company that was just like, this is a commodity where we can still make some money off of. So let's put it out without a thought as the proper way to put it out to... <laughs> Thanks, Annie. Wrap it up. <laughs> uh, to, to think about, you know, hey, what can we do to make the current fans happy while doing what we can to expand that base? 
so it was really cute. Annie just like jumped, sort of, sort of stood up on her hind legs and touched Tim through, you know, this little hole in the chair, right? To just sort of be like, stop talking. Stop talking. It's time to go. All right. So we will listen to Annie, folks, and bid you all adieu. Each Monday, we'll have something in this podcast space to entertain your ear holes. Until we meet again, we bid you adieu. Farewell. Subscribe to Friends Talking Nerdy on iTunes, the Google Play Music Store, as well as Spotify. Remember to support Friends Talking Nerdy on Patreon. Goodbye, darling.